I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we read scripture closely and come to an understanding of who our God is. Now, it's been two months since we began Exodus, and a lot has happened since then. So to begin with, let's go through a bit of a recap and just kind of catch up to where we're at. The book of Exodus, it's a primer. It's a guide and it reveals to us who it is, this God that we serve. The Hebrew name of the book is Shemot, which means names. And so as we go through Exodus, that's what we're looking to discover. What is the name of God? Now, I don't mean the syllables that are strung together and spoken. Now, that's just a very small part of what the word name means. The word name is used to indicate an entity's reputation, their honor, their character, their authority, and more. And that's what Exodus teaches us from one end of the book to the other. It starts with the very simple and elementary matters of who God is. The first revelation of God in Exodus is that God sees the oppression of his people. He hears our pleas for release from bondage. He knows our plight and hardships. And he remembers his covenant with his people and acts in accordance to this covenant. Simple right? One might even say that this is elementary. In the midst of this, the name of Hashem is revealed to Moses as the name that is the remembrance of God for all generations. Well then, as the book progresses, the revelation of God progresses. We next discover that Hashem is a God that chooses vessels to use to accomplish His will on the earth. Not that everyone is chosen, but rather that He chooses certain individuals at certain times to progress His plan for all mankind. Sometimes, he chooses vessels and raises them to honor. Others he chooses as vessels for destruction. Because God, he chooses both. Then as we continue to discover that the God of Israel is not one who is going to allow his people to sit in comfort and ease while still in sin, he will challenge his people, and he will do things that are unexpected. At times he will call his people to him, and in so doing, he will increase their pain and their discomfort on this earth. He'll purposefully cause hardships in our lives, partially as a test to reveal what's in our hearts, not so much for his benefit, but for our own, and partially to entice the enemy out and to make him bold in his persecution, to cause him to extend himself in his pride so that he can then be defeated. All of these revelations up to this point have been somewhat foundational, if not easily accepted. But all of these are in many ways geared towards God's people so that they know him and trust him in the difficulty to come. Well, then as we continue to read, we come across the plagues that have been leveraged toward Egypt. These plagues that reveal the nature of God and the plagues act not only as a judgment, but also as a work of evangelism to the people of Egypt. And as we explored the plagues for three weeks, we discovered several different revelations that were present in those ten plagues. 
Three aspects of God's nature revealed through the plagues in ways that would have been recognizable to those who were present. First of all, the plagues reveal to everyone that the God of Israel is in fact the God of creation. The authority and the control that Hashem demonstrates through the plagues, it's profound when viewed from the outside of the simple bubble of acceptance that most of us who believe the Bible approach the Bible with. There is a single being in this universe, and he has fine control over the water, the land, and the sky, over animals, health, weather, and the elements, and the very light from the heavens itself. And it's this God that has chosen the slave nation as his own people in order to raise them up into a place of honor and to make them a nation. Now, if we shift our perspective a bit, we realize that the series of plagues is also an act of judgment against the gods and the religious structure of Egypt, which is something we'll touch on again in two weeks. And this is something that's specifically stated in Exodus 12.12, And all the mighty ones of Egypt I shall execute judgment. I am Hashem. This structure has allowed and even reinforced the actions that Egypt was taking against Israel. It provided legitimacy for the injustice of enforced slavery under a patina of justice. And Hashem, a God whose very nature is justice, had to step in to ensure that justice is in fact achieved. Every chance was given for repentance because God's justice is tempered with patience and mercy. And then, a final judgment declared upon the land of Egypt. And then if we take just a slightly different angle, we discover that even though the God of Israel is a God of love, this does not inherently mean that God loves every individual. In fact, if we examine scripture, we find that there are those who God hates, those who work injustice, those who oppress, those who destroy, those who victimize. These people, they set themselves up as enemies of the Most High in their arrogance, in their pride. They believe themselves to be untouchable. And then God, through the plagues, reveals their inherent vulnerability when they're compared to Him. He is the judge of all. And as the judge, there will be those who will fall under his wrath as it is directed to mankind. And so far, the revelations of God have shown us the qualities of his nature as they relate to the entire world. All mankind can see and appreciate these qualities. This week, beginning in chapter 12 of Exodus, we're shown on just what basis it is that God executes his judgment. How he decides who to judge as wanting and deserving of death and who he protects from his own judgment as he pours out his righteous vengeance on mankind. And once again, for those of us who have partaken in redemption, we're all aware of the standard. But once again, just as before, the book of Exodus reveals God's nature to all mankind, not just to those who believe, not just to Israel. And the opening parts of this book, that's why they're so epic, is so that it will catch the attention of those who are not his. So let's read this week's Parsha and then examine what we can pull from it and what is revealed. Exodus 12, 1-28 And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron in the land of Mitzrayim, saying, This new moon is the beginning of new moons for you. It is the first new moon of the year for you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this new moon each one of them is to take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the beings, according to each man's need. You make your count for the lamb. Let the lamb be a perfect one, a year-old male. Take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same new moon. 
Then all the assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slay it between the evenings, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its inward parts. And do not leave of it until morning, and what remains of it until morning you are to burn with fire. And this is how you eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Pesach of Hashem. And I shall pass through the land of Mitzrayim on that night, and shall strike all the firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim, both man and beast. And on all the mighty ones of Mitzrayim I shall execute judgment. I am Hashem. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I shall pass over you, and let the plague not come on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Mitzrayim. And this day shall become to you a remembrance, and you shall celebrate it as a festival to Hashem throughout your generations. Celebrate it as a festival, an everlasting law. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Indeed, on the first day you cause leaven to cease from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that being shall be cut off from Yisrael. And on the first day it is a set-apart gathering, and on the seventh day you have a set-apart gathering. No work at all is done on them, only that which is eaten by every being, that alone is prepared by you. And you shall guard the festival of Matzot, for on this same day I brought your divisions out of the land of Mitzrayim, and you shall guard this day throughout your generations, an everlasting law. In the first month of the fourteenth day of the new moon, in the evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the new moon in the evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened, that same being shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether sojourner or native of the land. Do not eat that which is leavened in all your dwellings, you are to eat the unleavened bread. And Moshe called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go out and take lambs for yourselves, according to your clans, and slay the Pesach. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And you, none of you, shall go out of the door of his house until morning. And Hashem shall pass on to smite the Mitzrites, and shall see the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts. And Hashem shall pass over the door, and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall guard this word as a law for you and your sons forever. And it shall be when you come to the land which Hashem gives you, as he promised, that you shall guard this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What does this service mean to you? Then you shall say, It is the Pesach sacrifice of Hashem, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel and Mitzrayim, when he smote the Mitzrites and delivered our households. And the people bowed their heads and did obeisance. And the children of Israel went away and did so, as Hashem had commanded Moshe and Aaron. So they did. So in the last episode, uh, I actually covered one of the verses early on in this chapter. Um, so we're not really going to cover that specific verse today, and we're, there's going to be a lot of things that you may want me to speak on that I'm not going to, because uh, so many other teachers teach on those things, and I really just don't want to be reinventing the wheel. So as we open chapter 12, I do want to draw your attention to something that I did discover this week. Uh, something that has for centuries colored the way that Christianity has steeped their understanding of several passages that occur in the book of John. In verse 5, we get an interesting command that in the English doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In Exodus 12, 5, it says, Let the lamb be a perfect one, a year old male. 
take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, in English, the word lamb, it means only one thing. It means a sheep. But as we see from the context of this verse, that's not the case in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word translated as lamb is seh, and it can mean one of the flock. Lamb, sheep, goat, young sheep, or young goat. This word is not a word that describes a specific species. It's a word that indicates age of any animal from the flock, either goat or lamb, and simply means that one is young, likely a yearling or less. So then when we turn to John 1.29, it's common for people to associate the statement that's made by John the Baptist in this passage with the Passover. Uh, John 1.29 says, And on the next day Yochanan saw Yeshua coming toward him and said, See the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now why do we assume that this statement has to do with Passover? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, because Passover uses a lamb, of course. And two, because at the end of the book, John does make a very real connection between the Passover and Yeshua as a Passover lamb in several ways, though it's never specifically stated by John. For example, in John 18.38 and 19.6, Yeshua is declared to be without guilt, and the Passover lamb was to be perfect. In John 19.36, it's recorded that Yeshua's bones were not broken in parallel to Exodus 12.46. And in John 19.29, hyssop was extended to Yeshua to drink vinegar from, just as hyssop was used to sprinkle the blood on the doorposts. All of this, as well as the day and the time of the crucifixion in the Gospel of John, point us to the fact that John is legitimately trying to draw out the connection and the end of the book between the Passover sacrifice and the crucifixion of Yeshua. But this passage at the very beginning of John, in John 1.29, anti-missionaries will point to this passage and declare that it is a false declaration, as the Passover lamb never took away anyone's sins. And they're right. The Passover lamb never took away sin. That's nowhere to be found in connection to the Passover in any way in the Tanakh. The Passover lamb provided a covering for the purpose of redemption. In the Torah, there's only ever one animal that takes away the sins of Israel. And it's found in Leviticus 16, 21-22. And we'll cover this when we get to the book of Leviticus in much greater detail. But in Leviticus 16, 21-22, it says, Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, and shall confess over it all the crookednesses of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions, and all their sins, and shall put them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a fit man. And the goat shall bear on itself all the crookednesses to a land cut off. Thus he shall send the goat away into the wilderness. So in this passage, in the beginning of the book of John, is it perhaps possible that John the Baptist is not referring to a Passover lamb, but rather that the author is making a connection between Yeshua and the scapegoat, which does carry the sins of the world off into the wilderness to be destroyed. Is perhaps John the Baptist declaring that this is the lamb which will one day become the scapegoat? I think so. I mean, it fits a whole lot better than the thought that John the Baptist was making the claim that the Passover lamb takes away sin in any way. So when you encounter an anti-missionary or someone who makes this claim that this is a false statement by John, it's not. Because the word lamb can mean either a young goat or a young sheep. It doesn't have to be just a sheep. So in the book of Leviticus, if we turn there and actually read it, it never uses the word lamb or seh. It speaks only of goats. So the question then comes, well, 
isn't it a bit of a stretch to say that John the Baptist is speaking of uh, a lamb as it is in Exodus 12? And it would be if we were looking at the composition and the material of the animal. But ancient cultures and ancient people, they didn't really look at material composition or origins in the same way that we do. That's something that came along since the Enlightenment. They saw the world through a lens of function and purpose. And the purpose statement in this verse is to take away the sins of the world. And that's not done at Passover, but rather at Yom Kippur. And so when John the Baptist states this, he's not making a claim of the composition of the Passover, but I think rather he's commenting that Yeshua is the young animal, the said, the, the, lamb, the lamb, as in goat, that will one day fulfill a specific purpose for the people of Israel, the purpose of taking away their sins. And from this we can understand that Yeshua, in fact, does fulfill many purposes. He did indeed serve as the Passover, as we will see. His blood is the covering that's necessary for redemption to be accomplished. But Yeshua also serves as the Yom Kippur scapegoat that takes the sins of the people onto his shoulders and carries them off into the wilderness. Now I want to make it very clear that the Passover lamb did nothing for the sins of the people. The Passover lamb's purpose was to identify the members of the people of Israel and to show those who were willing to act contrary to social norms in order to escape the judgment that was about to descend. And that's what we see reflected here in Exodus 12. It says, Speak to the congregation of Israel, not the nation, not the people, but rather those gathered together in the name of Israel, regardless of national origin, something we're going to see very explicitly next week. Take a lamb for a household, bring it into the household, make it part of the family, and then destroy it, slay it between the evenings. Take this creature that is becoming precious to you, that's becoming a bit of a pet, and destroy it for the sake of your lives. And then take the animal, cook it, and eat it. And when you do so, do it in a very specific way. And in verse 14, instructions are given to hold a memorial celebration of this event. Now what I find fascinating is that there is evidence in the text that the instructions given for Passover here are simply a one-time set of instructions. They are not to be duplicated or carried out from year to year. For example, the blood on the doorpost is not to be applied every year after the original Passover. How do we know? We don't. There's no text in Scripture that tells Israel to discontinue this practice. So why don't we do it? Well, the fact is, is that we know the purpose of the blood. Again, not composition, but purpose. The destroyer was to be loosed on the land of Egypt on that night 3,400 years ago. And the blood was the marker that caused the destroyer to pass by the house. Okay, so we don't put the blood on our doorposts, and that's rather small and inconsequential change, isn't it? The rest still applies, though, right? Or does it? In Exodus 12, there's a very specific instruction on how to cook the lamb in Exodus 12.9. It says, Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its inward parts. Don't eat it raw. Thank you, God, for that instruction, because uh, nobody really wants to eat a raw lamb. But then it says, do not bashal it with water at all, but sali the lamb, or roast it. Easy enough. Not raw, not boiled. Roast it. Got it. But then if we turn to Deuteronomy 16, we read a recounting of how to celebrate all three of the pilgrimage feasts. And in Deuteronomy 16, 5 through 7, it says, You are not allowed to sacrifice the Pesach within any of your gates which Shechem your God gives you, 
but at the place where Hashem your God chooses to make his name dwell. There you slaughter the Pesach in the evening, at the going down of the sun, at the appointed time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which Hashem your God chooses. In the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Okay, so uh, we are to roast the lamb in the place which Adonai chooses. So why do I even bring this up? My translation says to roast it and to eat it. The King James Version says to roast it. The, the ESV says simply to cook it. But if we turn to the Hebrew and look at this word in the Hebrew, it says to bashal the memorial Passover sacrifice. But Exodus 12 says, do not bashal. But Deuteronomy 16 says, bashal it. Now, is this a contradiction, or is this a subtle pointer to something bigger going on? Well, obviously, I believe it to be a subtle pointer to something else entirely. You see, the memorial of the Passover was never intended to be a repeat of the Passover. The Passover itself was a single, one-time event. It is the day when redemption was accomplished for the nation of Israel. It was the day of judgment. There being a change in a command that's stated in Exodus or Leviticus to then being changed when in Deuteronomy, it's not unique to this command. There are several instances of changes occurring between the early institution of a command and the later statement of the same command. And a lot of it has to do with context. The people in the land are in a dif different context than the people in the wilderness. Just as our context today is one where the commands for priests and Levites cannot be fulfilled. An example of this is in Leviticus 17 when it says that when you slaughter an animal that can be sacrificed, you are to bring it to the tabernacle and sacrifice it. But then in Deuteronomy, that command is let up and people are allowed to slaughter animals for food wherever they are. They don't have to bring it specifically to the tabernacle to do so. And the context in those two passages are everyone's living in proximity to the tabernacle and everyone's spreading out throughout the entire nation. There's a different context of where the people and how the people are living. So what does this difference teach us? Well, it reveals to us that the memorial observance of Passover is just that. It's a memorialization of this one-time event in history. And the memorial is simply that. Nothing is accomplished at the memorial but a yearly reminder of what God has already accomplished on our behalf. In the same way, the way that we memorialize the sacrifice of Yeshua through the Passover meal, or even in the Christian church through communion, is not a way to accomplish redemption. Nothing new is gained by participating, but rather it's simply a recognition of what has already been accomplished on our behalf. Do not go into Passover with the expectation of gaining anything new from God. It's simply a memorial and a celebration of what has come before. In the day of Passover in Egypt, judgment was poured out on the earth. All people within the borders of Egypt were judged. Those who were covered in the blood of the Lamb were judged unto life, and those who were not covered in the blood of the Lamb were judged unto death. The whole purpose of the exercise was to demonstrate the basis that God uses for His justice. It doesn't matter if you're a good person. It doesn't matter if you're a victim. It doesn't matter if you've never had anything good in your life or if you have partaken of every indulgence available to man. The only thing that matters in God's courtroom when it comes to the day of judgment is, are you covered in the blood of the Lamb or not? Now, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 23 present an issue if you read the Hebrew. 
In the English, we totally missed this issue because translators have done their best to make this a non-issue. But I think that making it an issue once again can actually teach us something that's really cool. So the question is, what does the word Pesach mean? Now we usually understand the word Pesach, it means Passover. And, but this gives us a bit of the wrong picture, I think. Strong's exhaustive concordance gives us the translation of it that is to hop, that is figuratively, to skip over or to spare someone, by implication to hesitate, also literally to limp or to dance, a halt, to become lame, to leap or to pass over. Now, that's kind of helpful, I guess, maybe. Let's turn to some usages in Scripture and see if it can help. So other places in Scripture, such as Isaiah 31.5, give us the impression that it doesn't just mean to pass by. Isaiah 31.5 says, Like hovering birds, so does Hashem of hosts protect Jerusalem, protecting and delivering, passing over and rescuing. 1 Kings 18.21 is usually translated as waver, but that's not the best translation. In 1 Kings 18.21 it says, And Eliyahu came to all of the people, and he said, How long would you keep Pesachim between two opinions? If Hashem is Elohim, follow him, and if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. So hopping, that verb of hopping, it's the word Pesach. A literal translation of this phrase is, Until when would you Pesach upon two ambivalence? Now it can be more literally translated as hover over two branches, almost like a bird that can't decide where to land. Pesach can be compared to the act of a mother chicken protecting its young from a predator. If you've ever seen that, the mother will spread out its wings and cover its young and make itself look big. And we see the same idea of this echoed in Deuteronomy 32.11 in the Song of Moses. As it says, as an eagle stirs up its nest, flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up and bearing them on its wings. While this is the same picture of what's going on with the Pesach, Deuteronomy specifically says, like an eagle rouses over her young. So it doesn't use the word Pesach. And so in verse 12 in the Hebrew we read, Bevarte ba'aretz, or I will pass over the land, in two words. The root of that word being the word avar, which means to pass over. But then in verse 13 we see, when I see the blood, I will Pesach you. And then in verse 23, we get that same, and Hashem shall pass on, pass over, avar, to smite Egypt. So if we consider these ideas in tandem, and they both mean pass over, then in one verse it says, I will pass over the land of Egypt in order to smite the firstborn, rather in two places. But then it says, but when I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you. God will pass over with the purpose to destroy, but then also God will pass over without destroying? Uh, do you see the problem there? If the verb is to simply pass over, then why is the verb avar used in verse 12 and verse 23? I want to suggest something else. Rather than translating the word Pesach as Passover, which is usually translated as, which gives us the idea of God saying, you won't catch my eye when I enter into judgment. I think rather we can translate Pesach as kind of an active protection. And I will actively protect you from my judgment when the time comes for judgment. You see the difference? We're not just avoiding his eye when he enters into judgment. He is actively coming and covering us and protecting us from his judgment.
And there's a comfort in that, I think, a, a greater comfort than just not catching his eye. Because if you're he's just not catching his eye, then you're sitting and cowering in fear in the corner. Maybe he will see me. But if he's actively there protecting you, you know he's not going to judge you. First Thessalonians 5, 9 says, Because Elohim did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Master Yeshua the Messiah. And I think that's something grand that we can hold on to about the nature of our God. When the time comes for his judgment to be poured out on the, on the earth, it's not simply that he will skip us, but that he will actively protect us. Now verse 13 says, The blood will be assigned for you, and I will Pesach you, Passover you, or actively protect you in my judgment on Egypt. In verse 14, the text then shifts into the seven-day festival that is to be celebrated in the following years. From verse 15 to 20, the command is given and repeated for the festival of unleavened bread. Seven days you eat unleavened bread. From the first day until the last, you are to remove all leaven from your house. Now, we're all pretty familiar with the idea that leaven equals pride or sin or that which puffs up. And there are many teachers out there that cover this material, and I'm not interested in reproducing their work, at least not in this teaching. In two weeks, we'll see. Instead, the Festival on Love and Bread demonstrates the suddenness with which judgment can come upon us, the quickness on which it might descend on you, and the attitude with which we are to approach this day. Because it is a day of drastic change. It's a change that you cannot plan for. It's a day in which you are forced to pick up all of your trappings of life and flee, for the enemy is on your heels to devour you. For many, this is a reminder that death could occur at any moment, and to have the destroyer come to your house without the covering of blood of the Lamb is to come under God's judgment. And as we discover later, to fall under God's judgment is to be sent to an eternal death. John 5, 28-29 do not marvel at this, because the hour is coming in which all those in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have practiced evil matters to a resurrection of judgment. Revelation 21, 7-8 The one who overcomes shall inherit all this, and I shall be his God, and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly and untrustworthy and abominable and murderers and those who whore and drug sorcerers and idolaters and the false, their part is in the lake which burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This episode of the Passover, it's a very real event. But at the same time, it is also a parable which teaches us of the redemption provided through Yeshua, as well as the judgment that awaits us all in the end of days. But with the blood covering you, as verse 23 says, Hashem will see the blood on your doorpost and will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house and smite you. You are passed over in judgment, protected from judgment. You are free of condemnation. You are free of sin and death. And verse 25 says, When you come into the land that God has given you, you shall recount how God freed you from your life of bondage and slavery to sin. You shall tell your testimony so that others might hear and believe. Revelation 12:11 says, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to death. The testimony of our redemption is a very powerful thing. It is a weapon to be leveraged for the kingdom of God. It is a real-life story of the exploits of God in our world, just as the story of Passover is a story of the exploits of God in the world on behalf of an entire nation. So while the Pesach is this for the world, a testimony of God's salvation on a national scale, we each have a Pesach story in our own lives. 
the story of how God came to us and saved us from the sin and the death that we were enslaved to. And this command to tell the story is the command to tell our stories, to recount and remember what God has done to miraculously free us from the one who has enslaved us. And it's this, a true story of redemption, which can convince others of the truth of God's power, his kingdom, his love, his control, his redemption, and his sacrifice. And it's this that can be the thing to begin to change the world for others, for those that are still in sin. Because redemption of the world, it costs something. Now, when we usually consider the cost of redemption, we think of what it costs God. And the cost to God, frankly, it was enormous. And since this is where most teachers point us, once again, I want to look at it with a different lens. As we think of the cost of redemption, we can consider the cost to us in our own lives, as we have to give up many of the things that have defined us from our beginning. The cost of what Hashem gave for redemption it is important to reflect on, but I want to consider today the cost to our flesh, to our pride, for the redemption of the world. So I want to ask a question. A few months back, a man named Jeffrey Epstein was arrested for running an island that was the stop for the rich and famous. The island has since come to be called colloquially Pedophile Island. It was a place where young children were brought and imprisoned and used as the plaything of some very evil people. Now, when this news broke, what was your initial reaction? I know that my initial reaction was one of joy that justice was being found and that this travesty that had been run in our world would now come crashing down. And as the case grew against Epstein's clients, it looked like an open and shut case. And then suddenly, under some fishy circumstances, Epstein ended up dead in his prison cell. Now, I don't want to get into how or what or who or whether he killed himself or not. That's not the point. Upon his death, the case against his clients was closed, and everyone who was a participant in this evil that could have been caught and faced a semblance of justice is now still walking free. So we know now that human justice has, if not failed outright in this case, it has been severely delayed. So my question is, what should be our prayers for the associates of Jeffrey Epstein and those who participated in this wickedness in other circles? Now, it's our human nature and our desire to see justice be done that screams for us to pray for justice, for their destruction, to scream, God, pour out your wrath on these workers of evil. But there's a problem with that. God's justice is a thing that, for the majority of mankind, is something that's faced after death. The judgment occurs at the end of the ages. And so long as the people in question are alive, they will continue to do what they can to practice and perpetrate this evil in our world. Many, many more young children will suffer at these hands. These individuals will receive justice, but if they get God's justice, and it will happen, it just won't happen now. It won't happen yet. But instead, there is something that we can pray for that would end this travesty here and now and in an instant, and it wouldn't require the death of these perpetrators. It's something that can bring the perpetrators to justice immediately. What is it? What can we pray for that would end a person's evil immediately and without fail? We can pray for their salvation. We can pray for their redemption. 
This is the only thing that's going to stop this evil in its tracks. So the question I want to ask is, how many of you pray that child molesters and pedophiles will be saved? How many of you pray that witches and warlocks will find redemption? How many of you pray for the souls of murderers and drug addicts? How many of you are so focused on evil in the world and a desire to see it judged by God that you forget that even they can find redemption? I have to admit this attitude of judgment is easy to slip into. It's the one that screams for justice in the form of the end of this perpetrator of evil. But there's a problem with this thought. Every time that we wish for someone to come under God's judgment and condemnation for a sin that they have committed or are actively committed, we're inadvertently asking for their behavior to continue until the day of their death. That's what we're saying in essence. God, I want them to come under your judgment, which means don't redeem them before their death. And in a way, when you pray this way, you become complicit in their future sin. Now, that may seem a bit harsh, but hear me out. If you desire only that child molesters come to justice, then every child molested between the day of your prayer and wish for this and the day that they die or are found out by human authorities and stopped is one that you have participated in. To wish for those in sin to be judged is to wish for them to remain in sin until judgment. Instead, instead if we pray for the salvation of a child molester and they come to a saving faith in Yeshua, then we will find that they will quit that action of their own accord. The heartache and destruction that is caused by them will cease in that moment and we will gain a brother and an ally to assist in building the kingdom of God, one who will be uniquely positioned to then reach others who are stuck in that particular sin. It's oh so easy to seek the destruction of sinners, but there's no quicker destruction of a sinner than saving faith. And what does a prayer of this sort cost you? What does this type of redemption cost? It costs a whole lot of pride, a whole lot of anger, a whole lot of our fleshly desire to watch the wicked burn. And it costs every bit of self-righteousness and that holier-than-thou attitude. All of that must be left behind. And this is the greatest quality of God that we can find in this chapter, and I might argue the greatest quality of God that we can find throughout the entire Bible. Our God, who is defined by justice, doesn't seek to employ justice first. He seeks salvation and redemption for the world and those in it first. John 3.16 for God so loved the world, that he gave his unique Son, so that everyone who believes in him should not perish, but possess everlasting life. His desire is for all to come in saving faith in his Son Yeshua, 2 Peter 3.9. Hashem is not slow in regard to the promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His love for us is a love that began while we were first sinners, Romans 5.8. But Elohim proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. While we were in the midst of our own despicable practices and abominations, God sought our salvation. He did not seek our condemnation. And if we're in his image, this is the way we should act too, right? And when we come to saving faith and then we begin to look back at those who were still in sin, it's our flesh that seeks to condemn them for not being where we currently are. 
our flesh desires that they find justice only after we have been passed over in the judgment that is just as equally due to us. We often fail to consider that had judgment come just one day before our own redemption, we would be under the same condemnation as we wish to call down on others. But we find here in Exodus that our role, our role is not to judge sinners. That's God's role. He's the one who passes over Egypt with judgment in his hands. But his call and his offer is for redemption. And he has called us to exhibit his love and to express his desire to redeem that which is lost. 1 John 4, 7-8, Beloved ones, let us love one another because love is of God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. But I think that the greatest cost of redemption is love for those who are still unlovable. It's on us to warn them of the judgment to come. It's on us to convict of sin when we see it, but we have to do so in a spirit of love and not one of condemnation. Oh, I spoke on this topic last week from an entirely different perspective. I didn't want to leave this topic there. There are those who are outside of the covenant. There are those who will come under God's judgment. There are those who will choose to remain loyal to Egypt and Pharaoh as they did in the book of Exodus. Those who simply cannot or will not give up on their sin because it's what defines them. They're sold out to and in love with doing evil. But we can't determine who they are. That's beyond me. That's beyond you. And as we examine the Exodus account, we find Israel did nothing. They did not lift a single finger to destroy their oppressors. They simply spoke the words of warning. Hey, everybody, judgment is coming. And they, they then took the measures necessary to prepare themselves to face it. Our calling is to act in the image of God. And to act in the image of God, to act in the image of the one who loved us and sought our redemption and salvation before we were lovable. We're called to walk in the manner of our Messiah, the one who poured out his life for us before we deserved it. And that means showing love for those outside of the covenant. Everyone whose path crosses ours. This means loving the worst of sinners enough to tell them of God's love for them. This means forgiving the unforgivable in others. This means opening up our homes to them and welcoming them into covenant regardless of their past. Regardless of whether they deserve it. Regardless of whether they even want it. Because the only thing that will stop a sinner is salvation. And the only thing that will save the world is redemption. And so as we seek life, we have to look beyond ourselves. Life is not found in a vacuum. Life is something that we are to participate in bringing to the world. So let's seek to redeem the world. And let's work to Dereshchai, to seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.